Well, guys, it is sugar season in New England, and a lot of days around here, it just smells amazingly awesome. I wish that I could share a smell over a podcast somehow, because trust me, you would be mesmerized and you would want a bottle of this amazing smelling maple syrup in your kitchen. But I thought today I will simply talk you through the steps from collecting the sap all the way through to bottling the syrup. So come along, join me on my sugar bush and find out what it takes to make amazing maple syrup. Welcome to this simple, doesn't mean easy podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Visser. Because most of us are longing to simplify things in the crazy, busy, loud clutter of life, I'm here to be your encouragement mentor, to remind you that while simple living is not synonymous with easy, it is something you can slowly ease yourself into, and it is definitely worth the effort. So let's do this together. Welcome to episode four of the Simple Doesn't Mean Easy podcast. Today, we are going to walk through the eight steps from sap to syrup. But you know what? Now that I think about it, I guess I should even kind of start with step number negative one or step number zero or something like the pre-step. <laughs> because before you can even collect sap, of course, you have to get ready for sugar season by placing your taps. So you do want to get a high quality good tap. You want it to be a 5 16th inch tap. And when you drill your hole, you want it to go about one and a half inches deep. Now, Bill does all of our drilling. I have never once drilled a hole. I'm just not the kind of person that like uses the tools around here. That is all his thing. I mean, he's been an auto mechanic for goodness. I guess it's been about 30 years now. And before that, he was a mechanic of all sorts. I mean, he was like a three-year-old taking apart toasters because he wanted to know how to put it back together. Okay, maybe he wasn't three. Maybe he was like six, but you get my point. So tools are Bill's thing. He is the one in charge of all the power tools around here. Um, so I say all of that just to preface this, that I've never actually done this, but I've certainly watched Bill drill many taps. And he likes to put a little piece of tape on his drill bit that is the right depth. So it's really easy for him to know when he's drilled about one and a half inches into the tree because that's when the tape will butt up against the tree bark. You also want your hole to be relatively straight into the tree. I think one mistake that people often make is to make it extremely diagonal and you can have problems with that. You want it to be relatively straight, but slightly, and I mean very slightly. I hesitate to say this because I don't want you to think the extreme. So very slightly upward slant to it, just enough so that your sap isn't going to pull there in your hole and not make it out the tap well. I hope that makes sense. Um, and then a common question that I get is why is this tap not productive? Why did we drill this tap and we're not getting sap? 
There could be so many reasons for that, but the first thing I always ask is when you drilled the hole, did you notice the shavings that came out? Because that is a sure sign if you have tapped into a good, healthy part of the tree. If you have tapped too close to previous tap holes, and this could be your own previous tap hole, or possibly the tree was tapped by someone else, maybe before you even owned the property, and you would have no way of knowing if this was done many years ago, you won't even see an outward sign because it's healed over and the bark has grown over it. And the stain column, which is the permanent damage inside of the tree around that tap hole, that's well hidden deep inside the tree. But if you tap into the stain column, you're going to get dark wood shavings and you're not going to ever have sap or very little sap coming out of that hole because you've tapped into dead wood basically. So if you see dark shavings, you might as well go ahead and tap another hole because that hole's not going to do much for you. But if you see bright, light-colored, healthy-looking wood shavings, then you know you have not hit a stain column or unhealthy wood, and you should be good. If that's the case and your tap isn't immediately productive, then most likely it's just not time yet. The weather has not yet gotten to the perfect sugar season, beautiful kind of weather. Um, That basically means you want it to be freezing at night and above 40 in the day for many hours stint of the day for many days in a row. If you have that kind of weather condition, then you are going to have the sap flowing through the trees, which is exactly what you need, of course, if you want to collect it. Okay, so if you have the healthy wood shavings, you've drilled your hole correctly, and the weather is the way that you need it to be, then you are going to start seeing sap flow. You know what? I feel like I should also point out, if you do know where the previous tap holes have been, you want to drill your new hole at least four inches away to the right or the left and slightly up or down. So if this is something you're going to be doing year after year, you really want a system so that you don't do what's called girdle the tree, which means put a line of taps all the way around it and just have total dead wood. So you, you the sap isn't even able to flow correctly because there's so many dead areas in the tree. So the best way to do that is to have a system that you're always going to the right or always going to the left of last year's sap hole and that you are always going up and around or down and around. As long as you stick with the system, then you're basically going to be winding, spiraling around the tree and you're never going to girdle it, which is what you want to avoid. Okay, once you start collecting sap, you are going to need at least 40 gallons of that sap before you're going to be able to make one gallon of syrup. So you do need, and that's if you're tapping a maple, a sugar maple tree. It's totally different if you're tapping birch or walnut. We're not going to get into that right now, but basically, trust me, you need a lot of sap. So once you have collected a fair amount of sap, the next thing that you're going to need to do is filter it. You have collected in your sap probably things like uh, gnats and bugs and ants or things like leaf debris or dirt. 
So the first thing you want to do is do a simple filter to get the biggest part of the gunk out of the sap instead of putting it in your pot to boil. So for that step, we actually like to use an old filter. We keep the previous seasons for many years and the ones that have been well used, we use right at this beginning stage because this stage isn't overly important. If something does get into the sap that's gonna be boiling, that's okay. There's plenty of other steps for it to filter out. So we'll use an old filter and filter it and get it into our pan that we're going to be bottling it in. Okay, no, wait, I've already forgotten a step right off the bat here. We will first, before we do any boiling, run our sap through a different kind of filter. It's a reverse osmosis filter. And we have built our own, all of the detailed directions I have on the site, I'll leave my site. I will leave a link to that description and all the DIY directions to build your own in the show notes. But basically what it is, is the same kind of filter setup that you might have under your kitchen sink if you filter your kitchen water. The difference is you're doing the reverse thing. That's why it's called a reverse osmosis. You are actually keeping what is typically seen by a filtering system as the impurities. And that is basically the sugar of the sap. That's what you want, right? Because the sugar is what becomes the syrup. So what you get rid of is the excess water and you keep the quote unquote impurities. After the sap has gone through the reverse osmosis filter, you will find that it has doubled or tripled, maybe even quadrupled the amount of sugar that now exists in your sap. So it could go from 2% sugar when you start to 6 or 8% sugar after you've run it through this system. Why does that matter? Because you have immediately reduced your boiling time in half or more because now you have a lot less water that you have to boil off. You have, first of all, taken that initial initial, initial water right out of there, right off the bat. It's called Permeate. It's great to drink. It is wonderfully filtered, refreshing water right from the tree. Um, you can use it in any way that you would use water. We find that we are overwhelmed with Permeate during the sugar season, so I don't often keep much of it because you only need so much water in a day. But you certainly can keep it and use it as water. Okay, so once you've run it through the reverse osmosis filter, then it's ready to start boiling. You have a lot of options for how you boil it. People have all kinds of really ingenious ways of building homemade evaporators. We simply use deep, giant turkey fryers. And I mean, they're literally, that's what they are. They are for frying turkeys. When we buy it, it actually even comes with a pan for taking the turkey in and out of it. You get rid of that pan, you just use the big pot, and we boil it over propane. 
we heat our home with wood. So and living in New England, we go through a lot of wood every winter. So the, it seems overwhelming to us to have to also be dealing with cutting and chopping wood for boiling our syrup, as well as heating our home. And on top of that, when you're heating with wood, you have to really regulate it. You have to be monitoring it often, making sure it stays at the right temperature, adding a piece of wood every 15 or 20 or 30 minutes. And you also have to get that fire nice and hot before you start boiling. So honestly, we just love the convenience of turning the dial on the propane tank and off it goes or on it goes, right? (laughs) So the boiling part is what takes the longest of this process. So what are we on now? Step four, right? We gathered our sap. We filtered it through just an old filter from previous years. It's by the way, it's called an Orlon filter. And I will put a link in the show notes to everything that we use. All the products I mentioned, you'll find in that one link. Okay, so step two was to filter it through the old Orlon filter. Step three was to filter it through our homemade reverse osmosis filter. By the way, step three is definitely optional. Um, I would not recommend step two being optional because if you do wind up getting some leaf debris or some bugs in your sap, it can really turn the taste of your syrup to be quite bitter or odd. So I would never skip that step. But you can skip the RO step if you don't have an RO, um, if you're not concerned about conserving the energy and reducing your cost. It definitely is not a necessary step. Some people, by the way, argue that it changes the taste, or they worry that it will change the taste. There have been studies done by people who know what they're talking about, who have come to the conclusion that there is no difference and that it is not seen as any negative impact on the taste whatsoever. I can tell you from experience, our first year, we didn't have an RO. The second year, we didn't have the RO till oh half or two thirds through the season. So we went for quite a while without it. And then suddenly we had it. And never for a second did I taste a bit of difference. But we saved a lot of money. So I would never go back. And I personally don't see the RO as optional, but I wanted to point out it is optional. Okay, so the boiling time is the longest time. And that is now on step four. That is done outside. People have told me they do it inside. People have told me they don't mind doing it inside. I don't understand it. I don't know how they accomplish that and not have a mess inside because it's a very, very long time of a lot of steam. And I wouldn't want that in my house. It's just, it's a lot of, of hot steam. So, um, we do that outside and we, because we have over a hundred taps, we go we have a lot of processing time. We have two giant turkey fryers and a couple, I call them restaurant pans, like the steaming trays that restaurants will put out, um, a couple of those. So we have a lot of surfaces and pots and pans that we're boiling in. Um, we go through a lot of propane too. Eventually, I would love to have a sugar house. We would love to really do this the professional way with the 
big, nice evaporator. But for now, this is what we have. This is our system and it works. Okay. So we boil for a long time outside. We do not have to sit there and monitor it every minute. If we did, wow. Wow. I can't imagine like, because it's, it's a long time. <laughs> but I do set timers. I will go out very often and check on it, but that takes 45 seconds. Um, and then we will add sap as the sap boils off, we will add more. It that does lead to more of a caramelized taste and a very dark syrup because we are boiling it for a very long time and adding more sap as we go. We personally would do it no other way that that's what works for us. Okay. When it's gotten to a point outside that the color is getting much darker and we are running out of sap or we have used it all. If we haven't used all the sap yet, but we think it's getting close, I will often at that point do a test of the bricks, B-R-I-X. That simply tells you the sugar quantity, quantity in it, the the percentage that is sugar and the perfect bricks to bottle your syrup is 66, which basically means 66% of it is sugar. So when it's outside, I will check that a few times just to make sure that I'm not missing something that maybe the dark color isn't there, but it's almost done. You know, I will check that, but it's very seldom that you miss, I mean, you know, when it's getting close or we've run out of sap to boil one or the other. So at that point, it's time to bring it inside because as you get close to that beautiful, perfect 66 bricks time, you want that to be where you can be monitoring it very closely. And you have a much lower quantity at this point because you've boiled so much away or RO filtered it away too that it's it's more manageable on the stove in the kitchen. So before you bring it in to the stove, you do another filtering. So this filter is one, if that first filter I used was three years ago, this next stage filter might be two years ago or last year's filter. It's still not a brand new one. It's one that I've been repurposing for this purpose. But um, you, I do put that boiled down sap through another filter and then you bring it into the stove where you're going to be monitoring it closely. Sometimes it will go on for an hour or longer in the kitchen but we put a a thermometer in it and closely watch the temperature so you're watching for it to get to the right temperature and that varies depending on where you live and on the current weather conditions, but it's roughly around 219 degrees Fahrenheit. And we're also monitoring the bricks much closer now. There are actually three different tools you could use to monitor the bricks. There's a hydrometer, there's a Murphy's cup, and there's a refractometer. We greatly prefer the refractometer. We went many years with a um, hydrometer and I was terrified of breaking that thing. It's basically like this absolutely giant kind of thermometer that you used to use when you were a kid that mom would use to take your temperature. It looks just like that, but it's giant and it's glass. So I was always terrified of breaking this giant glass thermometer. 
I also struggled with it. I don't feel like it was as accurate as we then found it to be when we switched to refractometer. Um, I also don't like that the hydrometer is only for your hot syrup. You'd have to buy a different one if you want to measure the sugar quantity, sugar content, sorry, of your sap. It's a whole different instrument. The refractometer you actually can use on both the sap and the syrup. So I love that about it. Um, And it's just a lot easier to use and I don't have to worry about breaking that fragile thermometer looking thing. Okay, so we are looking at the bricks often. And as we get close to the 66 and as the temperature is inching close to the 219, at that point, I don't leave the stove. I never walk away because I have before and I have regretted it. (laughs) It is very quickly. It will take forever to get there. Like you think it's never going to reach it. And then all of a sudden you blink and it's almost past the perfect point or it has burned the pan or it has boiled away. So I never leave it at that point. When you reach those magic numbers, and by the way, if those two numbers don't happen simultaneously, then I ignore the temperature and I go with the bricks because the bricks is the really important number, that 66%. When you have reached that, it is time to do one final filter before you put it into bottles. And I will tell you, not only have I been tempted, I have skipped that final filter. And I will also tell you, I have always regretted it because I have had bottles that were loaded with nitre, which is also called sugar sand. It is not necessarily a problem. You, I mean, we certainly still used every drop of that syrup, but it's really ugly and it's really annoying. This is like a badge of honor to a sugar maker to have a bottle of syrup that is gorgeous, that has no sugar sand in it. So if I skip that last step, I kick myself again and again, and I never have a bottle that is worthy to give to a friend or a family member or a neighbor. It's the bottle that I stick in the back of the root cellar and bring out when it's just our family that I know is going to use it. So don't skip the final filter. There's different um, options of how you can do this final filter. Some people like to use a coffee urn because you do need to keep it nice and warm, but you don't want to ever reheat it up above 180. Uh, Maybe 190 would be okay. Definitely don't want to go 190 because you're going to form more nitre. Um, so if you use a coffee urn, you want one that tells you the temperature and monitors it closely, and that will keep the syrup warm as it is dripping slowly through your filter. If you have this set up right, so your filter is inside or right above the coffee urn and it's dripping through. See, the big problem is it starts to cool quickly and the nitre will clog up your filter So you wind up with this backlog that's going nowhere 
and your syrup has cooled too much and then it's just a mess because you have to reheat it all. But then if you heat it too warm, you're going to get more nitre. So filtering is the big bugaboo and difficulty that most backyard sugar makers complain the most about. This is the hardest step. Bill, just last year, designed um, a, what do I want to call it? I mean, it's a press, it's a filter press, but it's a very unprofessional version. Filter press is the answer to the nighter, but filter presses are also very expensive, not something a typical backyard sugar maker could ever consider purchasing. So Bill rigged up his own version. It's not pretty, not fancy, but it does an amazing job of getting that syrup filtered while it's still warm and can go right into the bottle. But I realize most people aren't going to have this set up. Um, So another tip I like to give people is to invert their Orlon filter so they build a moat inside of it. So you kind of pull the center up and then you have a donut moat around the center. It's hard to describe. Um, what you're doing is almost doubling your surface area of the filter that the syrup is seeping through. So you have a twice as much chance of getting it all through that filter before it cools too much. Um, I have a YouTube video on it. I'll leave a link to that in the show notes because the video makes it much more clearer than me just trying to describe it to you in words. So there are definitely some tips and tricks to get you around this hard part, but trust me, you don't want to skip it. Okay, so I think that puts us on step seven, right? So I told you there were eight steps. The final step is simply getting it bottled. You do want to do that quickly while it's still nice and warm. And that will also seal your jars. You can either use typical old mason canning jars or you can use special syrup bottles. The lids are just twist-on little caps, but they have a built-in seal. And the heat of the syrup is what causes that to seal. Um, You can use a filter, not a filter, a, a cone What do I want to call it? A funnel. That's what I want to call it. You could use a funnel to help you get that into your bottles efficiently. Or if you have a coffee urn set up, like I mentioned, you can use the spigot to just get it right into your bottles. So that's convenient. Or if you have a setup like our homemade, um, our homemade filter press, then Bill has a spigot built into that. So he just opens the spigot and it'll go right into the bottles. At that point, I guess the last, well, a couple more tips I want to give you. Um, you want to, I'm thinking, well, okay, it's actually three. I think three covers it. Number one, you want to fill it all the way to the top. No need to leave any headspace because syrup shrinks as it cools. So fill it all the way up. The second thing I want to tell you is to turn it on its side if it's a syrup jar or you can turn it all the way upside down and sit it on its lid if it's a canning jar after you've closed it very securely of course and you can do that just for a few seconds no longer is needed that's going to sanitize the top of your jars 
Because otherwise, you know, if you don't fill it quite all the way, you have an area where that really hot syrup hasn't touched the glass and the lid. And it's possible that if there's any sort of small bacteria there that maybe it could survive. So just to be safe, it's great to turn your bottle upside down and get that really hot syrup all over the jar and the lid, and that's going to get it sanitized. And the third thing I want to tell you is you don't want, and we did this for many years before we realized it, you don't want to line your bottles all up really close. There's no need to cover them with a towel or anything to keep them warm, because if you do that, they're going to get really dark in color and possibly nighter continue to form even depending on how hot they are and how long they sit there. But keeping them all together just keeps them all really hot. You can go ahead and separate them as they're sitting there on your counter to let them cool down. So there you have it. I have taken you from drilling the taps all the way through bottling the syrup. And If you have a hundred taps or more like we do, this is a process you go through many, many times during the roughly six weeks of sugar season. It is far from easy. And given that you need 40 gallons of sap to equal one gallon of syrup, it's a long drawn out process. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Check out my episode number two, right? Yeah. Episode number two is all about the science behind the syrup. And you will be mesmerized with how amazingly good this all natural sugar is. It's not easy to come by, but it is totally worth the effort. So I hope that that gave you a little insight into what goes on around a sugar bush this time of year. And I hope that it has given you a new appreciation for the delicious, marvelous stuff called maple syrup. So if you have some maple trees or other tappable trees accessible to you, and you have never done this before, I also hope that this has given you some inspiration that If you break it down step by step, it is very doable, definitely worth it. So if you have a few weeks left of sugar season where you live, like we do here in New Hampshire, I hope that you will consider tapping a few trees. Um, You know that you still have time, often by simply looking at the tree itself. If you look closely at the buds on the tree, and they have not yet opened, meaning if you look closely, you don't, you're not able to see the stamen and the pistil inside. Like I know people will sometimes be like, well, wait, is this bud open or is it not open? You'll know that the flower has opened, right? If you can see the inside part of the flower. If you can't see that, then you still have time to tap. If you wind up with only having a few days before those buds open, I still personally think it is worth it, especially if it's your first time, because it's kind of good to start slowly to do something that you only have to commit to for a few more days. So if you have some tappable trees and the buds aren't open on those trees yet, get yourself a drill 
get those taps in, collect that sap, filter it, boil it, and bottle it. You will not regret doing it. Trust me. So thanks so much for listening today. I I love it that you were willing to spend a few minutes listening to me talk all about this whole process that I find fascinating. And if you are willing to go over and leave it a rating or a review on your favorite podcast player, I would be super happy and very grateful. By the way, if you're having trouble accessing show notes, I know a few listeners have reached out and asked me, um, I don't know if some players have, if it's hard to find them on certain podcast players, maybe. But anyway, if you go to solely rested, S-O-U-L-Y, solelyrested.com slash podcast, you will find all the previous episodes along with the show notes. So I hope that helps. Thanks again so much for joining me and I will catch you on the next episode.